In episode four of the Curiosity Offensive podcast, I spoke with Margaret Byfield, an advocate for private property rights and the executive director of American Stewards. I met Margaret at a local political event and her presentation shook me. I was knee deep in chemotherapy at the time and her warnings about the future of private property rights for Americans made me feel more nauseated than the drugs. Um, Unfortunately, Margaret has to represent a growing movement of concerned ranchers and farmers that are raising the alarm over the Biden administration's aggressive pursuit of the rarely discussed 30 by 30 land grab agenda, which on paper aims to conserve 30% of land and water by 2030, under federal government protection, of course. Margaret emphasizes the need for grassroots efforts and individual involvement to counteract the political consequences of disregarding property rights, but she also provides a roadmap for how you can get involved, starting locally by educating county commissioners, which Margaret goes into detail uh, about and how successful that has been so far in stopping the advancement of this agenda that seems to thrive in the darkness when no one seems to be paying attention. We also talk a little bit about the concept of individual liberty and freedom through private property rights, which are seen as a fundamental to individual uh, liberty. And when individuals have the right to own and control their property, they also have the freedom to use it as they see fit, make decisions about its use and enjoy its benefit without interference from others or the government. This enables individuals to pursue their own goals, interests and aspirations and you know, contributes to personal fulfillment and self-determination, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all the things we as Americans uh, sometimes take for granted. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this discussion with Margaret, which is designed to not only educate you about a pretty slippery agenda that's kind of seeping into the local and state levels, but also to inspire you to remember that there are advocates like Margaret that are doing everything they can to get the word out about these initiatives that are not advancing unopposed. And so I hope this conversation gives you a little faith in Americans and what we're capable of pushing out back against in the 21st century. So enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining me, uh, Margaret. I'm so grateful that you found time in your schedule. I know that you guys are you're really fighting a very aggressive uh, two-front situation here. And um, I'm just honored that you took the time. So thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. And it's absolutely my pleasure. I'm really excited to kind of have this discussion with you and your audience and get a whole nother group of people aware of this, this really important issue. I agree. So the my main motivation, as we discussed, of talking to you is I was very impressed with your uh, presentation that you gave to a local meeting that I attended. And uh, I really enjoyed not only just your your lovely education that you gave people about property and property rights and how that is a, a foundation of the American way of living and how valuable it is to each individual and for families. And um, I, I would really love, honestly, for you to just tell me what you feel about uh, what's happening with property right now. How are you How are you seeing trends emerge in terms of property rights? Do you see that people understand that property rights are something that we truly should hold sacred and dear as a part of being in the American experience. What are your opinions just um, off the cuff? 
Well, I think that our education system doesn't teach the importance of property rights. So uh, unfortunately, we have a whole group of Americans who are growing up that, that have never understood that connection, the connection to our ability to own property and our ability to limit our government and, and um, enjoy our liberties, exercise our liberties. Those three things are absolutely connected. And um, it used to be, even when I was going, going through school, which was obviously many years ago now, um, you know, we were introduced that to a little, but I really learned that from my parents because they believed in it so, so much. And then later when I left college, when I was finished with college, I started reading a lot of the founders materials just because I was very interested in American history and realized that there are so many people that don't understand what our founders understood. And that is that our nation was founded more on the ideals of um, things like separation of state. In other words, there should not be a collectivist government that that makes all the decisions, that those, those duties should be broken up so that no one entity could ever have control over everything, meaning control over our nation, control over all of our people. So those concepts, most people are familiar with that. That's why we have the three branches, you know, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. And, and the founders were really smart to separate those. And, and along with that, we have our Bill of Rights. We have our freedom of speech, uh, freedom of press, the freedom of uh, to right to bear arms, you know, all of these freedom of religion, all of these um, rights that are critical and define America because we as the people have those and they're not to be infringed upon. But you can take all of those elements and they by themselves, it, it's really just a philosophy and, and it's words on a piece of paper. Hmm. But what gives us the people the ability to make sure that we can enforce those? That government never gets control over the people, but that gives us the ability to enforce them. That is our ability to own property. And that is what is so different about America from any other nation, is our founders understood that. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. One of the, the letters that I, I read early on that Thomas Jefferson had written, and he was in France. Uh, he was in France a lot of for many periods during our foundation um, as America was being founded. And on this particular day, he, he wrote this letter back at the end of the day, telling of his story, how he was walking through the French countryside, and there were these big, beautiful, vast forests um, that were full and lush and with huge trees and resources, and it was just gorgeous. And this lady, uh, he ended up walking alongside for a while and, and learned her story, and she was very, very poor, uh, was walking to the next town to to try and get some day work so that she could feed her children back at home. And um, so he, he, she kind of guided him on where to go and helped him. And uh, he paid her a little bit of, of money just for her help. And she cried and she told him, I've never seen this much money ever before. Wow. And so they parted and he, and he, um, he made the observation in this letter that he wrote back to James Madison, a different James Madison than what, what, who we're familiar with, but in America, and he, he tells a story and he said, what became so clear to him was that there were all these vast lands that were king's lands that were full of all of these great resources that the people could not use or access. They were set aside as basically the king's playground and the royalty's playground. So the elite could have access to all these resources, but the people could not. So in other words, if that lady was to go on that land, 
and uh, pull a piece of firewood to take home to, or, you know, her children for her stove, uh, that would be a criminal action on her part. And he pointed out that the majority of people in France at that time were impoverished like that lady. So the masses were impoverished and they had no way to get out of that situation. And he writes in the letter about how, you know, in America, we cannot, we cannot allow this to happen. The people must own land. The small landowner is the most important part of the state. And that really struck me when I was very young. And I thought that is absolutely so true. And, and that's what our founders understood. They understood that for us, we have a good constitution. We have our Bill of Rights, but how, how do we enforce that? The people must own the land. So that's why, like when, when we made the Louisiana Purchase, which at the time, Jefferson made that purchase at the time, it doubled the size of our nation. But that land, Jefferson didn't call up the Bill Gates of the world or China or any other, you know, big uh, wealthy individual. What he did was it, the lands were opened up to the people for settlement. Mm. So depending on which state you settled in and under which Homestead Act was in place there, you could go out, anybody, any American settler could go out and stake 120 acres claim or up to 640 acre claim. And that was their homestead. So it evenly distributed the land into the hands of the people. And then that meant Every, everyone who wanted a piece of land would have the ability to grow their own food, build their home, uh, defend their home and, and defend their family, uh, create, mix their labor with the land and create a product that helps support their families as well as their communities, which then creates a good local economy, which then creates a good state economy, which then creates a good federal economy. But as long as the people own the land and the natural resource wealth of a nation, they can control the nation. But if the government owns the land and the natural resource wealth, they can control the people. Right now in America, government owns 40% of the land. Yeah, I was going to ask we, you what it's that It's really number. changed for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's about, I, if you Google, if you ask Google, it's like 27%. So 27. Well, 20, and I'm like. Yeah, 27, 27% is what the federal government owns. So if you put with that all of the state and local government, those lands that they own were up to 40, nearly 40%. Wow. So that means 60% is in private hands. And they keep taking more and more and more every day. I mean, we're getting to a point where land is no longer going to be owned by the people, it's going to be owned by government. Mm -hmm. And that's what the 30 by 30 agenda is about. And, and the reason we've been um, working on that as we have been. Yeah. So before we jump into the 30 by 30, one of the main things, you know, when I've kind of talked to other people about these issues, especially those who I completely disagree with politically, um, mainly individuals who are just, um, I think they don't understand the value of private property because they don't think they own any. And it's because they are Americans in most cases that have never been in an environment where they didn't own their property. So they don't actually really know the difference, if that makes sense. Not to sound, say that in a condescending way. I just, I truly am trying to give them that grace, right? Um, and a lot of them say, you know, we have to reach a state where the environmental protections that are going to be required from a global, you know, climate change agenda um, are, are going to require government intervention because individuals can't or won't do what they can to protect 
the environment. And so the government, the state has to come in and basically do whatever they can to protect the environment, right? And so what do you say to people who propose that to you? Is that um, something also that you see as, a, as common of an idea as I do? It just might be the social circle I travel with, but do you see that as a pervasive idea um, also in your, in your ecosystem, in your environment? I think a lot of the people that support the environmental the environmental causes um, tend to lean that direction because that's how that's what the environmental groups have been telling them all these years. Mm. But that's not the re reality on the ground. If you take if you want to look at if you look at the land in America that is poorly managed, it's the land owned by government. The land that is well managed is owned by private individuals, and there's a, it, it makes perfect sense when you really think about it. Um, the one, let me give you an example of how of private land management versus federal land management. So let's say you own a piece of ground and there is an invasive species, so some like a weed that's going to choke out a lot of the good vegetation that, that you start seeing along one of your uh, creeks in your or, or rivers or just a riparian area. So if you're the landowner, you're going to go out and you're going to get rid of that while it's just, you know, a little grouping of plants. The federal government system, the bureaucratic system, you would have to let them know that that invasive species is there, and then they will have to do a study, and then it will have to go up the chain and be approved by all the layers of bureaucracy. By the time you get through all the approval processes, and that's also, hopefully, the environmentalists don't sue to stop that uh, project. Um, by the time you get through that, all those approvals, it's 18 months down the road. Now you're not dealing with a little patch of an invasive species. Now you're de dealing with acres and acres and acres of a problem. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. And and the other thing that's important is a private landowner that depends on the income from that land to survive for, you know, for their basic needs, for their prosperity. They're going to take good care of that land. I mean, you cannot graze cattle on a piece of land for one year and have and overgraze it and be able to come back the next year and support that herd. You lose your whole income. So the whole idea that a private landowner is going to destroy their land uh, makes no sense because they depend on that land to support them the next year. So how do they grow their business? They grow their business by making sure the land is even better the next year. And so... So what you have is the private land management system is set up so that the person who owns that land is going to know, is going to be taking very good care of it. And let's say you've got a bad apple. Let's say you've got one guy that decides, no, I'm just going to use my land poorly and, and uh, you know, I don't care about the environment. That's one person that is going to be a very small piece of the pie. But what happens when the government who owns 40% of that land makes that bad decision that impacts 40% of our land? So, you know, even if you have a bad actor, you know, in the private land system where the land is evenly distributed or, you know, distributed over a, a number of people, you're not going to have uh, the kind of environmental problems that people are saying you're going to have. Mm. If you really want to, if you, if you look at the West, which 50% of the West is owned by the federal government. Okay. So most of the federal land is owned by the West or is in the Western states. It's not in the Eastern states. 
And so when you hear about all these big wild forest fires going on in the West, which we hear of all the time, in fact, we'll start getting back into fire season. Um, that's because these fires are starting in highly protected lands. So there's a certain, um, there's a there's lands that are considered and and protected as wilderness. The, the Wilderness Act requires that those lands be managed in its natural state. Hmm. So for one one thing is you you're not supposed to have any mechanical equipment up there. So even including including off-road vehicles. Wow. That's why it's a, really not a very good place to go hunt because the only hunters who can go in there are those who can uh, walk all the way in four or five, 10 miles, however deep they get. And then if they kill something like a deer, they have to pack it out uh, themselves on foot all the way out. And so it's really, there are areas that really you don't have a lot of people going back in them. But things like a fire starts in a wilderness area. And, and because the wilderness area is not managed, you have the underbrush is not eaten down and you have uh, just ready-made fuel in these forest areas that get very clogged up with this dry fuel. And so a fire starts and um, the, the policy, the requirement is you have to let it burn because putting out that fire would be an unnatural act. So these fires typically start in the West on federal lands. Wow. And like in a wilderness area, they start and they can't be managed. Nobody can go in and put those out until they get outside the borders of the wilderness area. Now, now that's why you have these huge fires because they're not controlled. Once they start, they're allowed to burn. And then what they end up doing is burning out all the neighbors around them. And so, you know, that kind of, of and, and think about it. Those areas are set aside to what protect species to protect habitat, to protect watershed, all of these things that the environmentalists will tell you is so good about these things. Well, what happens when you have a massive fire? You've destroyed all of that. How many species are in there that just got burned up? Ugh, yeah. you know, it, it creates this dead zone. Mm -hmm. And so that is, that's the kind of federal land management that we don't wanna see in America. That is, that's the wrong way to go. And, you know, you can also just drive through the country and, and you will notice the difference. If you know the borders between federal land and private land, um, they're usually pretty easy to recognize because one is poorly managed land and anybody can tell that. And one is very well managed land. Mm. So, you know, a lot of critics of probably what you're attempting to accomplish here. And I think you're going to you're already making quite a significant groundswell in your movement. Um, is, you know, anti-environmental, uh, it's misunderstanding essentially, right? Like the, the accusation from the really hardcore environmental left that I have encountered is that we, uh, they put everybody in boxes, you know, we um, are, you know, just capitalists that don't understand that without the state protecting the land and the resources to combat bio biodiversity, corporate interests would just come in and develop the land and kill biodiversity regardless. And so the only way to have for biodiversity to even have a remote chance of survival is under government protection. What alternative do you have for that, right? So let's say that there's like the Everglades. Somebody really wants to make sure that that is just protected land because it is exquisite. It's a masterpiece of earth, right? What is an alternative to federally controlling that area or even at the state level, having the state control that level? 
or control that area? You know, there is a lot of, there's been a lot of um, policy that have, have been forwarded to transfer the federal lands to the states. That's one, one concept because uh, the closer the land is being managed to the people, the better it's going to be managed. Um, but still, again, I get back to uh, private land ownership. You just cannot, if you really, if what you're really after is good stewardship of the land, then you would put it in private land ownership because that's that's the best way to manage the land. If you look at America's landowners, most of them are fourth, fifth generation landowners. So these are people that have stewarded the land. They love that land um, and they and they plan to turn it over to their children and their children's grandchildren. And so they're they're looking at it in that way. How do we make this land better uh, for future generations? The other thing is most people who are who who have that lifestyle are and are in agriculture, um, they're not their motivation in life is not power and money. Okay. They live there because they love the lifestyle. They like, you know, I, I've seen this because we have conferences and we bring our rural people in into cities, you know, for these conferences and they're like caged animals. They can't wait to get out because, you know, they don't like all the traffic. They don't like, you know, all the things that we're used to in cities. Um, they like waking up in the morning and going out. Yeah. And feeding their cows, you know, or feeding the horses and going out and fixing the fence and, um, you know, rescuing calves, whatever it is, that's what they love. And they will tell you they've never had a day of work in their life because they love the lifestyle. So that's who you want over our lands. You don't, what you don't want is you don't want this corporate mindset or the environmental land trust um, that where it's this collaborative thinking in trying to manage land. Um, you, you just can't replace that. Now, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not opposed to, you know, keeping some areas for, you know, a national park or, That's my, you know, that was places be my where, question. yeah, because, uh, yeah. uh, well, uh, you know, my friends on the left who I've had very heated discussions with us about, and I love them so much, but we just disagree on many things. And one of them is that they don't believe in private property at all, which is very scary to me. Um, just looking at the 20th century alone should have taught you that that's not a good idea. Um, but it, but really the um, who is going to protect the sea otter? Because if you leave it in the hand of, you know, Joe Schmo, he's less likely to care or be able to organize resources and efforts about these endangered species, right? So let me ask you, what would what would be in like a real true, uh, like a legitimate policy shift? Like, would you take the Everglades, for example, and then hold like a public auction and have people be able to buy parts of them if they have certain development criteria that they're going to agree that they won't engage in? You know, like New Mexico does really well or did do really well is keeping outside people from coming in. Um, so, and then what would you have them all agree that they are members of a trust, a statewide committee to protect the Everglades and they own that property, but then they, so to, to paint for me, what a, what a decentralized alternative actually looks like on a policy level. Well, I think, I think first off it's, it's private land ownership, you know, which I keep coming back to. That's your best, that's your best management. If, if the public wants to keep certain lands, um, 
protected and not in that system, then, you know, we do have the national park system set up where certain lands are like Yellowstone and Yosemite and some of these others are set up and, and uh, managed. You know, I think, I think it would be reasonable to, um, to maybe set a percentage of how much of America's lands could be put in that kind of a protected um, system where it's where it's available to others to go explore. Um, but again, it just still gets back to the best if you if if the focus is, if the purpose is how do we best manage the land, it's always going to be in private ownership. You know, I don't those arguments about well who's gonna who's gonna save the seal? Um, what I think what people that don't own land don't understand is that if you are um, if you are like if you're raising cattle on on land, you want that area to be diverse. You want to have all of the different wildlife also there. You're going to want to keep the predators under control, which then helps your deer and your elk. And you're going to want to you're going to want the sage grouse out there because they help with bugs and other things that they eat. I mean, anybody who owns a piece of land and makes a living off the land understands how all of those things work together better than, you know, uh, anybody sitting in an apartment in New York City who believes nobody should own property. Um, You'll hear just, that? You just fund them. <laughs> well, and I and I don't I'm I don't want to be critical. My friends um, are great, but it is. I, yeah, they would they would laugh. They're, they're, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you know, it's just having not been there and having not lived that lifestyle, you don't understand what these people do to take care of the land and and how that is just a part of them. I mean, so I grew up on a ranch in Nevada. I mean, I understand this because that's where I came from. But now, you know, I'm traveling all over the country and I, you know, I, I can go to somebody's property in, in Montana and, and I love touring their land with them mm -hmm. because they will take you around and they'll tell you these little nuances about their land. And it doesn't matter where I go in the country and who I'm talking to, when they take me out to their land, they convince me that they own the best piece of ground in America. Yeah. And that is how they take care of it. I love that. And I, I mean, everywhere I go. Yeah. yeah. And the one thing I would tell you, you know, to, to your really lovely friends, and I'm sure they are really great people they are. Yeah. Um, that, you know, when it comes to property and this is, this scares me too, that people don't understand property. But my dad told me something years ago, that's always stuck with me. And he said, you either have the right to own property or you are property. There's no two ways about it. You are either you either own property or somebody is going to own you, and um, and that's really the connection to property. And I think that if people start realizing that we're talking a lot more than just land, that you know we're talking about societies where um, people were owned as property, which is immoral, and when you give you know, the, the idea that we shouldn't own property, that's a bit naive because somebody is going to own it. <laughs> somebody is going to own the land. And um, and then if they own it, they're also going to own us. And and I that's not the kind of society I want to live in. No, um, and I don't think most people who are listening to this want to either. Um, it's just a reconciliation of, um, I think, a mis it's reconciliation of, 
the narratives around property rights and what they actually mean in real world application, right? It's nice to say that I don't value property rights until you don't have any. And then you've lost the luxury, right? But it's, um, and then it's too late. And so we want, we want to prevent that. Um, so tell me about 30 by 30, because I, um, I, I understand a little bit about the history of land management in the West, like a very cursory understanding, probably like most people, um, just, I understand that the federal government owns quite a bit of the West. And now there are some expansive agendas, right. To add to their property acquisition. And so can you tell me a little bit about the history of this uh, agenda? And then I'd like to know where it's coming from. What's the origin source, right? Um, who's who's actually benefiting from this? And then, um, yeah, I'd like to know how you see it unfolding around you as a, an advocate against this agenda. So 30 by 30, it's an international agenda that, um, it, that to, to permanently protect 30% of the world's land and oceans. And now they've added in the inland waters. So they're also going for all the streams and, and um, uh, rivers inland as well. So what this means is this means um, land that is not for human use. So the vision is that 30% of the world will be set aside just for animal species. And um, in America, so this was initiated in America uh, six days after Biden was uh, elect or inaugurated. And um, when they when they launched this, the Department of Interior came out with a fact sheet this, that explains certain details about this program that tells us what they are are what they are shooting for. And they said in that fact sheet, they say that 12% of the, of the land in America is already permanently protected in the manner that they're seeking for the 30%. So we know what makes up that 12%. That is uh, the, our national parks, the wilderness areas, which I described earlier, and conservation e private land in perpetuity, state parks um, and other protected areas. But we're talking about the most land. You can take a look at that and see what it is that they, they are envisioning for 30% of our nation. And as Governor Ricketts says, or actually now Senator Ricketts uh, from Nebraska says, that what they're attempting to do is the equivalent of setting aside, permanently protecting one state of Nebraska every year for the next nine years or two states of Texas. So you have to understand that this is land from their perspective that must be off use to humans. The, the second part of that is, is 30 by 30 is only the first step. So the ultimate agenda that they are shooting for is something known as the half earth agenda. And this was um, rolled out by a conservation biologist named E.O. Wilson, who believed that in order to save humanity, half the earth must be permanently protected and set aside for species and biodiversity. So again, we're back to, um, the kind of what they're envisioning is the kind of land management that I described earlier, which is federal collectivist control, which leads to the worst managed land that we have right today in America. Mm. And um, you know, and I and that's why I don't even I don't even view it as a conservation 
um, agenda, because if, you, if they were really for conservation, this is not the agenda they would put out. Um, and that's really what, what, what it gets down to with 30 by 30 is 30, 30 by 30 is really not about conservation. It's about control. So, you know, if they gain control and ownership of that much land um, and can permanently set that aside in that way to where we can't, we can't access the minerals that we need for um, the, the electric vehicle batteries, which right now we're getting 90 to 80% of that from China which frankly is, um, there's, there's a lot of issues with that. One of which is most of the, the, most of those minerals are coming out of countries using slave labor to make our EV batteries, um, which to me raises a whole other moral issue. Um, instead of allowing us to access the minerals that we have here in America and do it in a very responsible way, we're buying it from China, who's using slave labor to make our electric vehicle batteries. So, you know, it's that kind of logic that really frustrates me, why people would buy into these kind of agendas without really thinking them through. Um, but we put our, our resources off limits like this. It makes us beholden and dependent on other nations for our energy, for our electric vehicle batteries, uh, for our solar panels, for the wind farms, I mean, all of this stuff is coming over from China. So we're, we're making ourselves beholden to other nations who don't have good designs for us. And um, that's another principle. Like, that the yeah, what it sounds like to me is like my generation and yours, right? We're now beholden to the schemes of our grandfathers and they're all falling apart and they're not resulting in good things. And now they're just trying to expand the scheme. So, because eventually we realize it's a scheme, right? Um, I think right. that whatever can be decentralized will be decentralized and that includes governance. And so, you know, the American experiment, the, the first time humans decided that they were going to experiment with true self-governance was literally a decentralized governance model. It was a an attempt at decentralized governance, which was extremely radical for back then. Um, but yeah, I, I can also see that if they own all this land, they can set it aside for their corporate pals and their corporate buddies to do whatever they want on corporate federal land that will get exclusive grants. But we see it and I we saw what they did in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's just what they'll do with with who owns the rights to do what, where. It's, it goes to no bid contracts for my brother's uncle and his friend, right? Um, so let me ask That's you- That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so so let me ask you, what, uh, what was so scary to me, and I'm getting literal chills again, um, as an eighth generation Texan whose family multiple generations back lost the, and sold the land that they had originally found it. I am very, uh, I think, enamored with the love for private property because it truly does set in motion, I think, all of the other wonderful things about the American value system, right? Like the true American value system, um, which is all rooted in individual liberty and, and autonomy and freedom. Um, so I wanted to ask you if you could summarize <laughs> how successful this agenda has been so far, right? In 2023, how, how, how are they succeeding? And then can you give me some uh, examples maybe of some states that are states or local municipalities that are fighting back and what they're doing? Sure. So, 
you know, initially when this was launched, they really, they, if you remember at that time, um, the Democrats were in full control. The progressives were in full control of our government. So we had Biden, we had a, a progressive House and Senate. And um, they really felt unstoppable when they unleashed 30 by 30. And so the day that they unleashed it on every environmental website was the nice hooray, we're doing 30 by 30, we're going to save the world. And, and one thing I want to add to your point that you just made is what I really think is going to happen is once they get control of all of the, our land and, and all of our energy and all the things that they're after right now, once they get control of it, they're going to step back and say, oh, poof, we've magically solved the climate crisis. So yes, now uh, we'll decide who can use this land. I mean, you're right on spot. Another thing my dad said was it's not about um, whether we're going to use the land. It's always been about who is going to use the land. And that's as true as what we're seeing come out today. Yeah. So but back to the back to the campaign. So we knew that we had our hands full, that that they had all the political power, very little way, very few ways to stop it. But the first thing we did was we started a grassroots campaign. So we were expecting 30 by 30 to be launched and we were ready for it. So we had, we worked with a county in Colorado that passed a resolution in the, within three weeks, the first um, resolution opposing 30 by 30. I, I'm, I know for a county, I'm sure for any entity in the, in the United States to oppose 30 by 30 at Garfield County, Colorado. And then we we got that out to our network as well as we have a downloadable guide where you can learn about 30 by 30. So we got that out to our people. Here's what I love about our people, the grassroots people, the, the good core Americans who just love this nation is they're very bright. And um, all we really have to do is get them educated and they know what to do. So uh, we we sent all that out and start, counties from all across America started passing resolutions to oppose this. That started trickling up to the states and um, and actually very quickly, Governor Ricketts of Nebraska, as soon as he had learned about it, uh, he came out and opposed it and led a letter with the other governors to oppose it. But we had, I think, 15 governors sign his letter. That was all done within the first three months. And I think what kind of happened was by that time, the narrative in the press was that this was a land grab, which was exactly what we were calling it. It was a, a federal land grab, the largest federal land grab we'd ever faced. And um, that was how this was pitched in the media. And so when the Secretary of Agriculture came out and started trying to sell these conservation programs to get landowners to enroll in these voluntary programs, which then create a federal access on the private land, which then left them to control later down the road, um, he was faced with this, but isn't this a land grab coming from reporters? That's why you saw the administration make a major in May of 2021. And they came out with a report on this and they rebranded it, uh, called 30 by 30. Now it's called America the Beautiful. Oh, so you know they were having to pivot every time yeah, they do that, rebrand the Patriot Act. And yeah, let's, let's watch exactly. it out. Yeah, that's usually the opposite. Exactly. Take all the land so nobody else can get it, and then we're just going to let it rot, like we do already in the West. So uh, amazing. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Continue. I just had to. Yeah. So that well, yeah, that groundswell really built, and um, I know we have over 160 counties that have passed the resolution. That's just what we know of. I know there's a lot more out there. Um, in Congress, we presented to file the 30 by 30 Determination Act. 
uh, she got a lot of her colleagues very well educated on this. And so very quickly, we were able to um, educate a lot of people quickly that were able to stand up and keep the legislation. And so we never did end up facing a bill for 30 by 30. So currently everything they, that they are doing on this is unauthorized. There's no congressional authority for this. There's no constitutional authority for this. And so they're doing everything by government that they're using existing powers and authorities that they have to implement this. So I'll give you an example of one thing that happened last year. Uh, right after this was initiated in 2021, one of the first secretary orders that they removed uh, rescind the Department of Interior was one that the Trump administration, Secretary Bernhardt had put in place that said whenever the federal government was planning to make a private land acquisition, they had to get the consent of the local government and the state, the local government and the governor before they could purchase that land. Well, 13 days after the Biden administration initiated 30 by 30, they rescind that policy. They cleared that hurdle. So what we saw happen in Wyoming was uh, the federal government came in and they made the largest private land acquisition that they have ever made in the state of Wyoming, 35,000 acres. The county commissioners, nor did the government know that that was taking place. Yeah. And that's, you know, when we got back to that original question of, so how do we do this? How do we distribute the land? Should the Florida Everglades be, you know, protected? All of these questions. One of the things that, that we think would be smart policy is that any lands in America to be protected, it should be done so through a vote of the people or at least a vote of the representatives. So, you know, we have elected representatives. Congress should make that decision as to whether or not uh, we should be purchasing 35,000 acres of additional land. We have to remember, every time they purchase a piece of land, it erodes Americans' ability to control and limit our government. Hmm. The more land they get, harder it makes for us to ensure that we actually continue to have individual liberty in this nation. That's what we're passing on to our generation, to the next generation. So, you know, if Congress had that authority to uh, determine any federal land acquisition would have to be done by, by Congress or, and or, uh, a two-thirds vote, majority vote in the state that they want the federal land. I think states should have the right to decide how much federal land should be in their state. Um, you know, the federal government doesn't pay taxes. So when that comes off the tax roll, that's lost revenue to support the local services and it increases the pressure on the citizens in that area. So, you know, I think states, I think counties should have the ability to say how much untaxable land is in their community because they have to support the rest of that and, um, and put it to vote to the people, let the people decide. I agree 100%. Um, so in terms of um, where things are headed, you're seeing that there's a big groundswell of pushback. Where is that originating? Is it originating from just individual landowners organizing around your message? Is it, um, you know, people that, who are the, the legislative directors getting winds of this and then sending it upwards to like what paint me a picture of who your supporters are and who's joining ranks to help you in this cause, raise awareness and at the local level and the state level. It's certainly the counties have been fantastic. The counties have really organized well and come out and passed the resolutions. But 
in every county where that is happening, that means you also have a really good active group of local citizens who are making sure that their elected officials are, um, are um, educated on this and they support them and they stand up you know, and fight this. And then we just had great state leadership uh, Governor Ricketts was an incredible leader, and you know he came out and he he spent uh, he did a lot of um, press interviews and really explained this this issue to other audiences that weren't quite understanding this. He did a fantastic job; is still doing a fantastic job. Um, and then we have the representatives in Congress that spoke up early and started sending letters to the administration to hold them accountable for this. So it's been really an all front effort. But it's all it started with the individual. And I think that's the thing that we have to remember is sometimes, you know, sometimes we see these big, big agendas. We think, how in the world can we fight these? You know, mm -hmm. we're just one person. Well, you're not. I think what you find out is when you start standing up and standing up for beliefs and standing up for this country, um, you find that you've got a lot of friends who are willing to stand with you. And sometimes you just need one strong leader in a community to stand up and say, we're not going to do it this way. And, and to come up with a good, smart strategy on how to get uh, their community educated. And um, that it's from, it's been all, this whole effort has been from the ground up. You know, that's where it's, that's who we first started talking to. And they're the ones who have, have really pushed it up to the higher levels. But it starts with the people, us as enemies. So I've got a, um, my, my conservative friends would um, love for me to ask you, uh, in terms of the you know politicians that are looking for a 2024 bid, um, who are, how, where is, does DeSantis stand on all of this? Who are your supportive politicians? DeSantis? Yeah, um, unfortunately, DeSantis is on, DeSantis appears to be supporting 30 by 30. Mm. So he's, he's, um, yeah, he's in, in, at the end of 2021, the White House uh, launched their end year report on 30 by 30. And they listed the states that were supportive of the agenda and Florida was one of them. So um, just watching DeSantis, I love him on a lot of issues. I do not like him on the property rights issues. I think that there's a lot there that um, that he I, I don't like his decision making on it. I think I'm hoping that it's something that he could be educated on and maybe he's just not aware of some of these other issues. But from what we're seeing, um, that that has really disappointed me there. Um, you know, Trump was really good on these issues, uh, but there were still there's still things that he could have done. Uh, in on the property rights side of this that would have been more helpful. Uh, one of the biggest problems I think we have in, in America on all fronts in, is um, that the, we have a, a fourth state. You know, we have the administrative agencies that they really control so much of what, so much of what people can and can't do. The Congress hasn't authorized so I know that, you know, I think I, I told a little bit about my story um, on the ranch and how we ended up file filing a case against the federal government for the taking of our ranch when I was very young. And, um, you know, that was an incredible, incredible series of events of incredible harassment that the federal agencies were allowed to do, the, the federal land management agencies to, to my family. And um, as people hear those stories and they think, wow, I can't, I can't believe this kind of persecution happened in America. 
And I have to remind him, this happened during the Reagan-Bush years, the Carter-Reagan-Bush years, when we had really good people, you know, at the top who believed in the same values we believed in. The problem is it's very difficult for those policies to get down through the bureaucracy to where um, good governance, governance is actually happening on the ground. And so one of the things that we really have to do in America is Congress needs to take back that power. I mean, Congress has allowed the agencies to write their own rules and regulations to where, you know, they could pass a law that may be four pages and it turns up into 4,000 pages of regulations from the agencies. And so Congress really can rein in that power and start putting more sideboards on what the agencies can do. Congress is supposed to be writing the law, not the agencies. Yeah, but um, but that that fourth level of bureaucracy, that administrative state controls so much in America. And even I think I think Trump ran into that problem where he thought he was going to come in and just clean house. And he realized that there's this is such an entrenched part of our governance that figuring out how to pull back that power is going to be very difficult. So. You know, I don't know. I think you've got to look at look for a candidate that has. I think he's got to be a businessman because I think we're, you know, we are uh, spending this country way past our limits. You know, we are so in debt. Um, you need you need somebody who understands money and who understands how to control spending. And um, so that's why I like the business head. Uh, Trump had that. I think he did some very good things on that front. Um, but I think you also need a good somebody who's just a really good leader that can inspire uh, the people to to, I think, really get back to understanding our American roots. You know, what is our culture? What makes us Americans? And um, there is a program at Hillsdale uh, put out called Land of Hope. And it's a this series is about 25 courses you can go through through it's free online and it's it's our American history. And the professor at the end of that, or really at the beginning, said if you to define America's national culture, we're different than other nations because we aren't just uh, we aren't just Frenchmen or we aren't just, you know, any culture. We are that melting pot. And so what defines us? And I think he said it very well. He said it's self-rule. That we believe the individual, if the individual is allowed to flourish and for each of us to make a decision on what we can do best and have that opportunity to do that, then um, we are going to maximize what we can give to society and, and we will create a great society. And I think that played out because when America was founded, I think our most sophisticated form of transportation was horse and buggy at that time. 200 years later, you know, we're flying jets, we're going to the moon, we're doing all these things. And you <laughs> compare that to, you know, even the, the 2000 year history previous to that and how really how little human human um, ingenuity advanced until that moment when a nation was founded that allowed the people to rule their government that had never been done before. And um, and for the people to control their lives and the people to have that resource to make of their lives what they would. The people owned the land and they could control their government and they could keep the government from stifling that productivity. That's how we got to landing on the moon. And that is exactly what they are trying to stifle today through programs like 30 by 30 and the whole host of other uh, 
items that they're pushing on us right now. So what do you say to people who, uh, this, are, this is for my libertarian friends out there, um, who also have debated this endlessly with, and there's, uh, you know, the anarcho-capitalist crowd believes quite differently from the anarcho-socialist crowd, right? Um, so what do you say to people who say that the way that we protect the environment is to uplift economically? Because if people feel like they have an economic advancement as a possibility and that intergenerational wealth is something that they can build and the quality of life continues to rise for people, there's less polluting because they care more about their environment. Um, there's, I personally believe that. Do you, uh, that's almost like an alternative idea that's proposed to this 30-30 agenda where it's just very patriarchal. We just lock you out like we're the parents and you're the child and you can't access this land. There's an alternative that's about individual empowerment and giving people individually more of an opportunity to economically flourish so that they protect the land, especially if they own it, right? Um, so what do you see in terms of you know that type of mentality? Do you agree with that? Do you see that in motion around you as you're traveling the country and talking to people? Do you feel like because I feel like the economic situation here is on a downturn and that might actually force people to have to sell their property, right? So if we want to trend toward protecting the environment, we should do everything we can to raising raise the economic situation for as many people as possible, which to me means reducing taxation and spending across the board. Would, so what are your thoughts? Yeah, on yeah I, I agree 100%. I mean, and that's that's absolutely correct. Um, and, and so that's one of the good arguments against this climate crisis narrative is they, they think that we've got to have all, we've got to completely remake society. Nobody can own any property. We've got to have the command and control structure in order to save all these things. But really, first off, the problem is they define it where they say we're in a crisis is nonsensical. I mean, I, I think if you really look at the science, you look at the data, uh, look at the geology, the, the geological history, and and um, there's just no basis for what they're thinking. But even if you agreed that we were contributing to warming, and, and let me just qualify that and say CO2 is not a pollutant. CO2 is plant food. And actually, historically, we're very low in our uh, amount of CO2 in the atmosphere now. Uh, the more we get the more productivity we're gonna have, the better our crops, they're gonna use less, less land and produce more if we have more CO2. So the whole concept of even trying to, trying to control that as a pollutant is nonsensical to me. But even if you believe that, um, technology, allowing people the freedom to use their mind and have that benefit and um, become the best that they can be and create the things that they can create, unlocking that instead of trying to control that is what's going to solve the future problems. So, um, you know, technology can figure out a lot of these things. If we think we have a problem, maybe if a model tells us we may have a problem a hundred years ago, which is questionable, um, Technology can figure that out, allow us to keep being in, um, productive, and we're going to figure that out. The other thing you will have is those countries that are um, the wealthiest are also the ones that uh, can have the ability to spend the most on conserving things. 
So, you know, when we were founded, we used a lot of wood, firewood, and then coal. And so when we were at the phase where we, we were using a lot of firewood, we were chopping down a lot of trees. And then we moved to coal and then oil and gas. And once we moved away from, from firewood as our energy source, we have to have an energy source. Um, now we have our, our forests are flourishing. We have more forests than we did uh, even 50 years ago. And so, you know, when you look at a, a third world country where they aren't there yet, you know, they don't have that, that ability, they don't have those resources yet. Um, they need, there, there, many people across the world are using, you know, animal dung as their heat source, which then causes other problems. Why are we trying to take away from them their ability to use coal or wood or, you know, use their own natural resources to get themselves out of poverty? And that's what the climate crisis agenda is doing. And so, you know, when you look historically, when a nation becomes more abundant, it tends to be more generous and they can do more with the conservation of resources. But when nations are impoverished, they need to worry about whether they're gonna be able to eat and drink that day. And I, I think it's really criminal for um, the United Nations, for the international interest to be pushing an agenda like 30 by 30, where they have to lock up all of these resources in areas where they are impoverished. They should be able to use their resources and get themselves out of that situation. So, you know, my anarcho-socialist friends are in the back of my head. Uh, so what would you say to people who say that, you know, this advocacy for, uh, you know, protecting private land ownership is, you know, perpetuating a system that benefits the few at the expense of the many, right? There's always allegations uh, from especially that camp that, you know, basically states that we have to dismantle any system that enables the wealthy to accumulate resources and power to the disadvantage of others, which is the, the timeless song and dance of humanity, right? Um, so what are your, what, what alternative can you propose that uh, doesn't give that argument air? <laughs> um, because it's a really tough one. And especially looking back at American history, uh, it's hard to see where that's not a trend, right? I mean, and look at what happened to the natives. Um, and, and I always say to those proponents that the state is the biggest advocate of taking land from the people. And so, you know, it's a, a extra mm -hmm. layer of and look at, and I always look at the mistreatment of the natives and that horrific mark on our nation's history and how we treated those people when we came here to this land, their land. Um, so what do you, what do you think about all that? What do you think about arguments like that? Well, I think first thing you've got to do is get government out of the way. The more that government has its hand on the scale, uh, the more oppressed people are going to be. And when, the, when government becomes the decider on who gets, who's, who, who gets to distribute the wealth and where that goes to, that's where inequity comes in because government can only take wealth from individuals who are producing and give it to, to people who are not. And they get to decide who that is. And, um, you know, looking at the Biden administration, I wouldn't say that they have made the best judgment in a lot of cases. So that's not who I would want to decide. So get back to collectivist mentality, um, should there be a collectivist overseer in society? And I say, absolutely not. The power needs to be with the people. And so, you know, that's the first thing you've got, you've got that hand on the scale. 
if things are equal, if you don't have um, government doling out shifting to one group over here so that they can go out and buy property at a discounted rate, or you know another group over here, you're not tilting the scale, and you make that that system equal, then you know private property ownership is going to come down to how hard you work as individuals, how hard you save, um, how can you, and that's how it was in the beginning. You know, in the beginning, it wasn't, there weren't government programs that gave you a loan or a grant to go buy a piece of land. It was, it was, did you have the ingenuity and the ability to go out? And were you willing to go out and make something out of that piece of land that had nothing on it? And, you know, that's what, that's what built in America. And that's what we've got to get back to is, is that kind of thinking and not, not this collectivist type of thinking. I, uh, I definitely agree with you. Um, collectivism is um a frightening trend on the rise and i'm not i think it's just been so sneaky and pervasive because uh you know i have younger gen z you know friends and family that i talk to and they outright espouse communist propaganda and don't realize that um so where do you where do you see trends moving uh, how are you how are you feeling about this movement what is your what does your movement need, if anything, um, to build momentum onto this? I'm assuming, obviously, awareness. Um, I'm assuming that you guys are in legal, uh, have a lot of legal bills. Uh, so I'm sure fundraising is helpful. But how can people support you? And where do you see your organization going with this? Yeah, uh, we would love um, love the support that we can get from your audience or anybody who's interested in these issues, and you can go to our website, americanstewards.us, and learn a little bit more about us. But we have our hands in some really major fights right now. And as as much as I'm kind of, you know, uh, kind of buried in a lot of these battles and, and looking at the nuances of, of them, and some of it is kind of frightening, at the same time, I have great hope because of, because of the, the momentum of the people. You know, what I find is that we're at a place where when people, people are realizing how bad things are getting. This administration, I think, has taught us a lot of things. And um, things are happening in this country that nobody thought they'd ever see on American soil. Ever. And so we have whole new audiences that, that really didn't pay attention to these issues until now. And they're aware and they're looking for, um, they're looking for ways to fight it. And that's where I get back to what I said in the beginning is I really think we educate, we get people aware. Um, that is what gives me hope because it's new audiences that, you know, we reach every day that are people that, you know, I've talked to, you know, audiences that have no connection to agriculture that get what's going on with 30 by 30 very quickly. And they realize, oh, we're talking about our food security is what we're really talk talking about. You know, even if they don't get the property rights issue, this is about our food. And um, and I just see it. I see people every day that never had an interest in these issues seeing the bigger picture and willing to step in and help and fight it. And so that's what gives me hope. I mean, I actually feel a real momentum and a real turning happening in America. You know, it, that happens. The groundswell happens before you actually see the results. And that groundswell is there. And there's just people standing up, leaders all over that are standing up against this stuff. And not just 30 by 30, but all the things connected to it. So I have great hope. 
I do too. Um, my uh, friends that are, you know own a couple acres here, own a couple acres there, you know various places across the country. I've shared your message with them after um, you know the the day that I saw you speak, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, tell me more. Walk me through how somebody who's just like a homeowner like me, right? How I can." take this to my local state. Can you walk me through that roadmap of where I encounter the resources, what I should do uh, to get this in my, my own backyard? So I think start with, we've got the downloadable guide. And so if you go to the website, stop 30 by 30, it's 30x30.americanstewards.us. Uh, on that on that website, you'll see a place where you can download the guide, and it's a 12-page page guide that really explains 30 by 30. There's also a flyer there, like a two-page flyer that you can download to hand out. But read that and, and get yourself familiar with the topic so that you can talk about it. But then that's a really good vehicle to, to then contact your county commissioners, and if you know them personally, then go Go to those that you know personally and, and have that conversation. Have you heard about this? You know, what do you know about it? And um, just get in more resources on it. Uh, if you already have a county commission that's pretty well um, educated on these issues, ask them to pass that resolution, the 30 by 30 resolution. And, you know, and also I'm happy to come in and help, you know, educate any of these communities. We've, um, you know, we, I think in 2021, I did, 30 trips out of state is what I counted into different communities. And uh, last year in Texas, I think we did 30 meetings in Texas alone, just Dan and my husband, Dan, you know, um, just to these, these um, community groups and getting them educated. And it's that education then that, that gets them, they can then communicate that to their state representative, their US representative, that's really you senator, uh, get the state officials uh, educated on it as well. The ag commissioners, you know, the state land ag commissioners are thankfully, Tiffany, our state land agriculture, our, our state land commissioner, Sid Miller, really has a good understanding of this and he's been pushing back on it. And so we have, you know, our state representatives watching this in our own borders, which is, you know, I'm very thankful for. Um, but that's what you need to do. It all starts at home. The thing with these kind of issues is if you have to protect the home front, you know, think of it a little bit in military terms, that one individual, if you can if you can get your community educated and get your county commissioners educated and um, you all can come together and protect the home front and watch for things that are coming into your community that may help, that may be trying to implement this agenda locally, you can be that wall. You can be the wall for your community. And if everybody, every community does that, they cannot get this program implemented in America. It comes back to us, the people. It always does. So even but if then that, that then trickles up to the next layers. Yeah. So even if I'm just yes. a homeowner, I can take this forward. Um, I don't have to own, you know, a big chunk of land in the middle of nowhere or whatever, although that is my goal. Um, but I definitely, you know, think that it, just as a homeowner, taking this to the local, like whoever, it's it's a no-brainer uh, to protect yourself, your backyard from being acquired by distant federal bureaucrats. It's the, the recipe of every dystopian uh, horror <laughs> show that we've, uh, you know, that we are at zero interest in repeating or living out that timeline, that's for sure. Um, well, 
You're yeah. amazing. Uh, what do you say to one of the things that I've, I've really uh, seen in the post-COVID era from millennial women is um, a lot of us are starting to get very active politically. And it's like once mm-hmm. the COVID crisis is over, and I talked to a couple of fellow moms that are politically active, they, some agree with me on things, some don't. Um, and we were talking about seriously considering running for office, even if it's just a local small position. Um, and, and I think the post COVID um, patriotism of, wow, we just got a dose of what could really have gotten very bad. Um, and now we see that this is possible, right? And we want to be active regardless of your political leanings and just making sure that if there's decisions to be made that impact a massive community that you're at, at the table, right? Um, so yes, that specific demographic, woman to woman, um, what do you see women doing? How are women raising their voices and contributing to this? And what can we do better? You know, I love the idea of... Um, running for a local office first off i mean if we can get more women in in those local offices especially at that level i think that's so important because women tend to be more organized more you know definitely family oriented um you know and very passionate you know about about what you believe in and uh i think i think we need more of that in our local governments so i really like that i love that you're thinking about that i think that's fantastic i I hope you're serious Girl, because I'm, you I'm running once I, once I can, once I've got a, I mean, that's a five-year plan. Um, well, make sure you let me know because well, that, that's just incredible. Well, absolutely. and you know, and that's where it all starts. Uh, a lot of the people that we work with now that are in higher positions um, that still have these values, they started just like you you know, from that same perspective, you've seen it go wrong and, and you know there's something you can do about it. There is no small position. I don't care if it's a school board, fire district, water district, um, you know, whatever it may be that you that you run for, county commissioner, city mayor, you know, city council, get on those boards. You know, this oh, is where we the people have to start there. making yeah. sure that our perspective's on. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, I think we, we have to stand up for what we believe. I agree. Um, well, I'm, I'm amazed by your energy and your conviction. And I think that there's probably not a more noble purpose. Um, you know, our, uh, founders, I think made a critical grave mistake by not putting property rights in the declaration, I mean, the declaration, or I'm sorry, in the uh, founding documents. And when we had a declaration of independence, it should have been truly emphasized that property rights were sacred, right? Um, But they couldn't do that because there were institutions committed to owning humans. And so that was an unfortunate mistake and um, we're paying for it now. And so now we have a chance to, uh, do the right thing and really stand up for every individual's property rights. The, the minority is the smallest individual and we have to stand up for everyone's right to own property. Um, well, I commend you. I love what you're doing. If I can support you in any way, you let me know. Uh, but thank you so much for taking the time and talking to me today and sharing with everyone, you know, exactly what you're fighting against. And we all applaud you. I'm sure I've got some wonderful people that will hopefully take action after listening to this podcast. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. It's been fun.
Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take care. Hey guys, Tiffany Madison coming to you on behalf of SeatMatch, my favorite sponsor. Building an efficient team is no walk in the park. We have all been there. A roll opens up, a mad dash to fill the spot ensues. And let's be honest, for most of us, it's a little better than a guessing game if that candidate will be a long-term fit. Getting it wrong is costing us all money, growth, and that most precious resource that you cannot get back, your time. So allow me to introduce you to SeatMatch with the motto, hiring the perfect fit guaranteed. SeatMatch isn't merely a hiring firm, but a strategic partner in meticulously crafting the ideal team. SeatMatch navigates through hundreds of candidates, utilizing their high precision hiring funnel to present you with the top two to three candidates. So listen to this. They have an astounding 92% success rate in ensuring an industry leading fit. They even offer a 12 month guarantee, which is completely unheard of in recruitment. So visit seatmatch.com today and find out how they can revolutionize your hiring process and tell them I sent you and get 10% off your first hire. That is seatmatch.com.